getting there on our way to christmas not even asking is now an okay to time to put out christmas decorations i say no we get our tree real tree like i say fake tree fake life take that to heart people that goes out uh, the weekend after thanksgiving all right did you all have a great halloween it was pretty awesome and there was some awesome stuff that happened around the scene i got to give some awards out first of all best halloween office video it has to go to steam take a look at this little gong for you steamers over there that was awesome i love the congo line i love the nod to uh tim burton's beetlejuice steam logistics gong by the way we'll be at f3 i'll be very generous i'll let you hit it even if you haven't made a sale if you're tough in this market we're going to talk about broker morale lately from uh, the looks of it, it looks like a lot of you could use a nice gong hit, so happy to facilitate. The best decoration I saw, though, I talk about getting steroid all the time. I'm from Boston. Well, check a look at this one in a, on a street in Roslindale. Someone made the entire street Starro Drive. They called it Sorrow Drive. They got the cars only sign. Then when you look over here on the side of the house, they got the bridge going on. They got a U-Haul truck, students moving in, crashing right into the top of that. That is so over the top. That's awesome. I wonder if they rented that U-Haul for that. Looks absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but now we're out of the spooky season, man, and it's time to get cold. It was 31 degrees here in Chattanooga this morning. I got a song for you to bring the season in. It's beginning to look a lot like fuck this. I don't like the cold. I hate the snow. It just has to go because I'm going to go insane. Whoa. Okay. Sorry about that. Should have been beep. What's up, guys? Can you show? <laughs> what the hell? Can you? <laughs> I apologize to the live viewers. We'll fix that on demand. Can you please show the uh, the weather right now? Is there a cover for my shock and horror? Uh, <laughs> fix. All right, it was 31 degrees here in Chattanooga this morning. Cold as hell. Uh, but coming up when you're here on Tuesday, it's going to be a high of 70 degrees, 54. You know, this isn't like the depths of Florida down here in Chattanooga. So, you know, bring a light jacket with you for the nighttime, but it's going to be a great, great occasion. On today's show, we got a lot going on. I'm talking to FreightWave's Rachel Premack about a new study that says truck fatalities are up 71% over the past 12 years. Has anything improved recently? And are ELDs helping or hurting? Molo Solutions co-founder Will Jenkins, he shares his founder story of building a company from zero and selling it for $235 million to ArcBest. We'll find out what he learned along the way and how it helped shape his freight philosophy. Freight Waves, uh, Justin Martin is here. He's bringing the trucker perspective on trucks as a service, detention pay reform, broker morale, where yellow's freight went, and charging your kids a trick-or-treat tax. Plus, we get crashes into bridges, robot dog carriages, disastrous wedding proposals, and more. 
We've also got a new sponsor this month, so we got to tip the band. Truxit is revolutionizing trucking brokerage industry. Truxit increases carrier payroll, reducing shipping costs. Truxit pays carriers in two days or less. Truxit reduces deadhead and empty miles. Truxit provides paperless VOL, POD, and payment. Ship for less and drive for more with Truxit.com. That's spelled T-R-A-U-X-I-T.com. Go check them out. But right now, editorial director at Freightways, Rachel Premack. Rachel, how was your Halloween? Good. Um, I was in Texas, which where I still am for a conference. So it was honestly really cold here. It's also very cold here uh, in the south in Texas. So I guess there's just a cold front hitting the southeast right now. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, like I remember first Halloween after getting married, like before we would go out to bars and stuff, kind of amateur night, kind of a pain in the ass. Once married, it was like, let's just watch a movie, chill inside, especially on a Tuesday. Yeah, or you could just go to Texas alone to go to a conference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel you. Hey, by the way, you did just get married. I have a proposal to show you, and I wonder what your reaction would have been. Let's roll the tape. When this guy okay. went to propose to his girlfriend, he didn't notice the little girl walking behind him. The girl dropped the pumpkins that she was holding, and he covered his mouth, shocked, when he realized what he had done. He helped the girl pick up the last pumpkin, and the couple couldn't help but laugh at the awkward moment. Well, that's Alan. That's you. Put yourself in the situation. Is, is are, are you unmarried right now if something like that happened? No, I mean, I would still get engaged and get married, but I guess it's kind of, it's a little bit of a red flag that he laughed when the girl tripped. I mean, I get like kind of like nervously being like, oh, you know, crap, you know, but I feel like it's a little bit of a red flag that he like laughed. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it was just a nervous reaction. I've only got like a sample size of one with this guy. So, I mean, it's okay. I would still get engaged for sure. It, as long it as would, he's not regularly laughing at children tripping. Yeah, it's, it's, it could be a bad omen. It could be a bad omen. It, it could be a bad sign of yeah. things to come. But, yeah, I don't know if it was enough to just, like, people have done worse things, I think. Now, oh, Rachel, yeah. there's, a, there's a, a report that put out, this article by Jalopnik. It's being, uh, it's being shared around a lot. And we're going to get to – it's kind of nuanced because some people said, hey, I just read truck accidents. We're down. We'll get to that part. But let's start with this one. It says death by 18-wheelers has risen by 71% over 12 years years which to me when i first read that i'm like okay but like why like there's the eld era and there's the era before right and you you kind of have to split them so this seems kind of weird but let's break it down a little it's a new study from the nhtsa right and it says 18 miles over the past years get that 71 percent increase what's going on here rachel yeah so if you just look at the amount of trucking that has happened since 2008 to today, obviously there's also an increase there. So it's not really helpful just to look at like accidents as a whole increasing because, you know, you could look at, let's say 2008 and say, Oh, we had so much fewer accidents then. Why don't we, um, you know, why, why don't we go back to whatever we were doing then? And the reason why I would assume there would be fewer accidents in, let's say, 2008 was because there were fewer truck drivers out on the road. So it's more useful to look at the per 100 million miles traveled uh, data point that the FMCSA puts out. Um, but when you look at that and you kind of look at from 2016 to 2020, which is the five years where we have 
kind of comparable data. It has shows it does show that fatal crashes involving large trucks when you look at per 100 million miles traveled that that has actually increased over the past five years. Um, and I think there's a variety of different factors we could look into as contributing to that. Well, they're using this report. The Truck Safety Coalition is using this report to call on Congress and the U.S. Department of Transportation to aggressively pursue common sense solutions to reduce track truck crash violence. Interesting use of words. Truck crash violence on our roads. There's a number of uh, messages here, including um, automatic emergency braking ruling for CMVs. Also, it seems like this is a play to force through speed limiters. Yeah, so I think probably... I, I wrote uh, a few months ago, I wrote about how the ELD mandate seems to have made trucking more dangerous rather than, you know, making trucking more safe and the road safer for, for drivers. And it seems like the big issue isn't, you know, slapping on more and more and more regulations. It's more around like, why is it that drivers are incentivized to not sleep, to be driving, you know, 70 hours a week as is the federal limit? Like what's going on here that that causes this system in the first place? And if you talk to, you know, after I talked to a variety of drivers and academics and former government officials, it seemed like the one theme that kept coming up is the fact that drivers are paid per mile rather than per hour. And that incentivizes them to drive as many miles as possible in as short of a time as possible because of the uh, ELD mandate. So I think kind of all of these things like a speed limiter or ELD mandate, these are kind of band-aids to cover up a much more essential issue, which is why, why are drivers you know, driving and doing this much in the first place? Huel Howitzer, he says, it's nice to cite trucks as the reason for the increase, but I have to believe the increase of idiots in cars is as much of a contributing factor as the trucks themselves are. I see on a daily basis aggressive and clueless auto drivers cutting trucks off, passing on the right when there's absolutely no need to. And we, you know, we saw that data right after the pandemic. People were coming out dry, like the roads were great for a little while. Everyone came out and for some reason, everyone felt like they had to go like 95 miles per hour. Yeah, I mean, I think also the advent of cell phones and people driving while texting and those sorts of things also haven't particularly helped safety on the road. Uh, But it's like in terms of, uh, you know, people coming back after COVID and speeding and, you know, people just generally becoming, you know, unsafe drivers, it's kind of hard to, I mean, it is actually easy to measure that you can look at accident rates, but um it's it's kind of it's it's difficult to to look at, but you know we have seen studies that that suggest that most accidents between large trucks and passenger vehicles are actually caused by the passenger vehicles rather than any sort of error made by the large truck. Yeah, well, some dude says, you know, anytime I see some something talking about common sense regulations, my skepticism kicks in. A quick glance at this Trucking Safety Coalition paints a picture of a fair bit of anti-truck bias being geared towards help us present the horror stories trucks cause. And in that report, yeah, you saw that call to speed limbers, another controversial uh, type of thing here. You think the report is unfair? I mean, I think if we if, if you do break down uh, fatal crashes and, and you know serious accidents by per 100 million miles traveled or some other sort of rate, it looks like they broke it down by state population, which I'm not really sure is like the best way to, to break down that data. Um, 
if you do look at the this idea of fatalities increasing by how much trucking miles are actually driven then certainly there needs to be some something needs to be done to reduce these sort of accident rates because it's not it's it's just it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be that, you know, innocent people are driving and getting into these accidents through no fault of their own at times, uh, both for the large trucks and for the passenger cars. But it's, I, I again, I really think like kind of these Band-Aid solutions that transfer more costs onto truck drivers rather than looking at what it is that's that's causing drivers to, you know, trying to race to beat the clock or any of these other sorts of, you know, ways of driving that, that folks have had to adapt to. I think, I think looking at, at trying to solve the essential issue would be better than like slapping on more and more band-aids that kind of just kick the can down the road. Let's take a look at that map again. You, you mentioned that. Yeah, it's really weird. It says worst fatal truck crash states in 2021. It's per 100,000 population. It says the national average is 1.7. But the weird thing about that is it doesn't take into account uh, lanes, traffic density, where freight is flowing out of, which I think would pay, play a much bigger factor. But based on their data, they're saying the worst is New Mexico. You got Arkansas, Mississippi, Montana, Oklahoma, Wyoming, Alabama, Louisiana, Nebraska, Kentucky, South Carolina, and Texas rounding out that top 10 yeah I, I mean you don't really think of new mexico as a state with a lot of truck activity i guess you could say i mean it's certainly a state with a smaller population uh places like arkansas or mississippi or montana i could certainly see montana you know considering that you know they're they can they're gonna be challenging weather and um altitudes and whatnot there but yeah, it, it's 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 a bit of a confusing, confusing kind of way of of portraying and and communicating this data. I think I would be far more interested in looking at actual uh, miles traveled as a rate rather than the state population, especially considering you know, like if if you're a truck driver in New Mexico, it's not like you're necessarily driving in New Mexico or. Yeah, I just I just think measuring it by state population is just seems not like not a very good way to actually solve the issue. I think it's a good way to communicate to people who live in those states like, hey, there's a lot of accidents in your state. Um, But in terms of communicating with the trucking industry, which is who we want to, you know, work with on these regulations, it's not really going to solve anything or really be a good way here's a much smaller sample here's a much smaller sample size new data shows a 14 percent decline in large truck fatalities i thought these elds weren't working rachel what's going on here and i realize this is just one quarter we've also got a chart here show this chart this shows fatalities involving large trucks and you can see the change uh elds they were um if you look at data past 2019 you're going to get more of a clearer picture on the impact of elds but then we have the covid pandemic which really made that drop down but then you see them shoot up massively and now they're starting to normalize again. I think this just goes again to this idea of how much truck activity is there really. In 2022, there was obviously lots of truck activity. Uh, Q1 of 23, that's going to go down quite a bit. Um, Q1 of 2020, that's obviously going to be a pretty weak year for trucking. Um, if you look at, I keep mentioning the, the rates instead of just like looking at the, the raw data, um, so the five-year average is around 3.7 
fatal crashes per 100 million mile travels. Um, it kind of starts from 3.5, sorry, 3.53 in 2016, building all the way up to 3.88 in 2019, and then dropping back down to 3.7 in 2020. So I think what we're really looking for with this data in terms of how did ELDs help or hurt safety, uh, we're going to have to like see, you know, 21, 22, eventually 23 and, and beyond. Um, but the FMCSA, when I asked them about this, said that we just don't have enough data yet to measure whether or not ELDs have hurt just because of what a disruption the coronavirus was to, to trucking. Yeah, in John Gallagher's report, he said the positive development is less impressive, however, when taking truck population into account. New operating authorities yeah. approved by um, the DOT, which can be used as a proxy for freight activity, trended upwards during the first quarter of 2022 as carriers like to take advantage of freight rates. That's not news to any of you. We've talked about that massive rise in there. So, I don't know, to, to end this, Rachel, good or bad, or the jury's still out on ELDs? I would say the jury's still out, but but leaning towards bad, especially when you look at some of these other academic studies around the, the effects of ELDs. They have found that uh, directly after ELD implementation, that the amount of, uh, you know, violations committed by drivers uh, actually increased directly after implementation, especially among owner-operators who had not been previously using ELDs. Um so, you know, having some of those outside academic studies definitely is not the best uh, indicator for what's going on for, for this new federal law. And before I let you go, another big story that was going around last week was Flexport's interest in Convoy. Has anything changed since? Has the ball been moved down the field at all on this deal? Um, no, all we know is that the conversation started sometime in the last uh, week or last few weeks that uh, Flexport could acquire Convoy's tech stack. We don't know any more information around how much they would pay for it or uh, how those conversations are going, whether that deal could be closing or in the coming days or weeks or, you know, alternatively not closing. So we're just going to have to keep uh, keep a close ear to the ground, see what the latest developments are there. I asked both Dan and Ryan and they, they both said, I, we, I can't say anything. We can't can't give you any no yeah. comment. I can't give any more details. But they didn't say yeah. neither of them said, no, that's crazy. That's not happening. So, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems like, you know, these conversations are happening and we'll it'll be, look, it'll be interesting. If it, it'll be interesting if it does. When I was with when I was with 3PLs that worked on the global trade side forwarders that are similar to, to um, Flexport, like FedEx Trade Networks. When I was with Vandergriff, we were very strong in moving boxes on boats. We were very strong there. But in terms of domestic transportation, usually don't specialize that well in that. So that could, that could potentially help a company like Flexport really uh, like bring some of this domestic trade up for them. So I think it's interesting. Now, Rachel, one last thing before I let you go. The Wheel of Stupid Questions is back, and I'm spinning it because you are been a while. It has been a while. All right. What is the weirdest compliment you've ever received? Oh, my gosh. Weirdest compliment I've ever received. Oof. There are so many weird ones out there. Something interesting. Not really a compliment, but last night when i mentioned to someone that i i do truck driving reporting they were like oh do you also drive a truck and i was like no <laughs> i don't i'm just writing it's not really a compliment sort of like a question that no one's ever asked me before usually people don't think that i'm also a driver um so i guess i'll take it as a compliment that someone think i thinks i could also uh, drive a truck 
Yeah, that's not weird. Yeah, they thought you could pull it off. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Where do people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at RRPRE, or you can just uh, subscribe to my newsletter, FreightWaves.com slash modes. Very, very cool. All right, Rachel, thank you for your time today. Meanwhile... Speaking of getting Storo, now this isn't Storo Drive, but it is a drive that's just as ominous as Storo Drive, because this guy has no clue he's not going to fit under that 12-foot, 4-inch bridge until he gets the can opener. Will just looked horrified. I can see him in the green room. <laughs> I wonder if he's ever had that happen one of his trucks. Let's bring him up. Will Jenkins, co-founder at Molo Solutions. Will, you ever lose a truck to uh, the can opener? You know, it certainly happens. It's happened once over the last 10 years, so unfortunate. But I've never watched it live. That was wild. Yeah, that was – well, I used to – you know, I'm, I'm from Boston, and once in a while you'd see it happen in Storo Drive. It's very rare to actually see the moment, but being stuck in the traffic that such an incident causes, um, almost a daily occurrence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> well, where are you coming to, into us from? You, you're a Chicago guy, aren't you? You in, uh, you in Chicago right now? I am in Chicago today. It's a little chilly. I just got back from some travel this summer in not cold places. So I'm acclimating right now and I'm not very happy, but it's all good. So where did, where did you go? Did you go, where, where would you recommend that you yeah. went to? So I spent the summer traveling Europe after I left Molo in May and I went to Sweden, Norway, Spain, Greece, France, Switzerland, a ton of different places, about 10 countries and 22 cities across three months. It was a ton of fun. How did Sweden compare to Chicago? Because it was just voted like the best place to live, I think. Okay, so I think Sweden, I spent a lot of time in Stockholm, very similar to Chicago, very busy in the summer, cold in the winter, but more to do outdoors, good food scene, lots of fun stuff. So I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Do they have like their own awful team, like the Bears there that you you guys all, all love and pray for? (laughs) <laughs> I don't like the Bears. <laughs> I, I know in Sweden they do love soccer and hockey, and I think their teams are solid. I didn't get a chance to figure out which ones were good, but they do love their sports. Hey, by the way, Will, I love a post you put up. My kids are in uh, – they just got like into Little League age, so now I have my coach hat, not my player hat on. But And they ju- one of them just won a championship. They just went through like some grueling tournament. And you put up a post about Coach Esh. What did you Let's learn go. from – what did you learn from Coach Esh? Yeah, funny story, man. So he started recruiting me in high school, and I remember sitting down, and he's talking about what he called the war of attrition. And it played out during my time at Wesleyan and also in business, but so many incredible lessons playing the game. I actually have a picture of me and my family from senior day back here behind me. A lot of it had to do with perseverance and being willing to put in the work to get to where you want to be. And you see that a lot in college sports because you get to the game and you're not as good as any of the people that you're playing with typically as a freshman. And you've got to really bring the heat on a daily basis and not get discouraged. Uh, Also, I think he taught myself and a lot of my friends, you know, how do you show up ready to perform like crazy story, but every Friday before games, we would have to polish and clean our shoes before we went through the Friday walkthrough. And then you had to dress a particular way for games before you started. So breakfast and all this stuff, but it prepares you to show up ready to perform. And a lot of those habits I've carried, I've carried with me since playing ball in college. 
Yeah, I mean, that's why I put the kids in. My wife was like, I, I'm like, look, we got to encourage them. They got to at least play for a few. So you got to do organized sports. I think especially, not to be like gender biased, but I think especially as a guy, there's a lot of camaraderie and teammates and just the way the guys interact with one another that are, are very valuable lessons. And it's a lot of how you're going to get interacted with later in life, you know, especially if you don't, especially in Absolutely. sales. Like if you don't perform, if you're not hitting the heat's on you. And the same thing is happening sure. in sales. Same thing's happening with a lot of people. But you, you took those life lessons and you started a company called Molo. Take us back in time. How did, that, how did that come together? How did the idea come together? When did you decide, I need to start yeah. this? So I got into the industry through Coyote. I was at Coyote from 2014 until 2017. I actually met two of my business partners at Coyote. So Andrew Silver and Stephen Mathis, who were co-founders of the, the organization, I met during my time there. And between my time at Coyote and starting Molo, I went to Transport America. Uh, they had recently purchased a brokerage, Optimal Freight, which was one of Noam Frankel's businesses. And I went over there and you know learned a little bit about the asset side and, and some of what it would take to kind of scale a smaller organization. And I realized there was a huge opportunity to still grow in brokerage. And I remember having a conversation with a friend saying, you know, I don't think I would go out and start my own brokerage. Seems kind of crazy. And then, you know, the group gets together, myself, um, Fogridge, Stefan, and, and Andrew, and we start talking about what it would be like to start an organization like Molo. And we realize the market's huge. If you can service customers well, treat your people well, you know, deliver for carriers and be able to go out and build that demand in the market, there's still a ton of space. As you see companies, you know, sprout up every day, not all of them growing are as successful as others, but there's a ton of opportunity. And so, you know, we bet on ourselves and said, hey, here's a chance for us to go out and do something special. And I think Really, when you're a startup, a lot of people are, you know, betting against you, not thinking that you can do the things that you say you could do. And these are people that I would go and work with and, and battle with on a daily basis. And you see their character and their work ethic and their grit. And those are the things that get you through the challenging times and allow yourself to, to actually grow a sustainable business. But, you know, to answer your question directly, there was just space in the market to do it in 2017. And we knew that we could go and, and build market share. And then from that point, actually build a strong service-based organization that, you know, grew to be the one that, you know, all of us know and love. Do doubters fuel you? Do you like having a little chip on your shoulder? I know I do. I talk to a lot of founders. I know Craig Fuller loves to have a giant chip on his shoulder. What, what, what do you mm-hmm. think of all that? I would say I am a huge chip on the shoulder person because I've never been the most talented or best at anything I've done outside of finding ways to put the work in to get to that level of success. And so that fuels me. I love it when people think that I can't go and do something or doubt my ability to go perform. And that's happened for me in, you know, a lot of professional opportunities. It's happened for me in sports. Obviously in Molo, you know, you spend the first three years building this organization that nobody knows and you start to build traction. And over that time, people are like, ah, oh, you know, what's different about you guys or why would we switch our business from, you know, a large, massive shop to come and work with you? And the service really plays out. You know, it's one of the reasons why we're able to grow the way we did. But having that chip on our shoulder, I think helps you stay motivated and focused. I am the kind of person that loves to have my back against the wall because you have no choice but to perform. And I think that's kind of the stuff that you learn through building a business and entrepreneurship. You also learn it through sports. You know, you got to show up every day. And I, I like when people bet against me because I'm not afraid to go put in the work. 
Slanging freight's not easy. I've done it. I've been fired from it before. Uh, and then I did it again, and I got fired again from doing sales. How did you grow it? What was your secret sauce? How did you build this company? Because, you know, you, you like 2017 through 2022, every single year was like a different market and different fires mm-hmm. to put out and a completely different situation. Yeah. I think what's most important is to root your organization in service. Customers are going to vote on who gets the business based on how well you do from a service perspective. Obviously, your rates need to be competitive. Obviously, you need to do something that gets their attention. But at the end of the day, if you pick up and deliver shipments on time, you communicate well, you're able to actually execute for them. They're going to continue to come back and give you more business and you have to scale accordingly, have the right teams in place. But I think understanding what it looks like to service business at scale is what helped us, you know, having spent time at a large organization like Coyote and seeing what a big brokerage does and what it looks like to service a large Fortune 500 shipper, I think helps you plan and map processes to be able to put your company in a position of success. And being able to tell a customer something about how you organize and and support their business and then go and execute it. There's a lot of people that are gonna say the same things. You probably hear the same pitches from different brokerages. It comes down to being able to actually execute that. I think that's the number one differentiator and and a piece that really allowed us to grow the way we did. And then outside of that, you you see the following that quite a lot of people from Molo have on LinkedIn and and being able to reach out and and develop new business, just a very insatiable hunger for going out to find new opportunities. I think driving that from the top down helps you continue to grow because revenue and obviously positive revenue allows you to be profitable drives the business. And if you can continue to add new logos, you can grow your business. How did you get? To, how did the point come up that you were going to sell the company? You guys had a great exit, two hundred thirty-five million deal with Arcus. Yeah. How did that all come together? And uh, and where was your head at the at at the time? I think when you look at growing an organization like Molo, we did one point two five billion dollars in revenue in twenty twenty two, sizable, right? And and that comes as part of Arcus acquiring us and us getting you know customers that were doing truckload business with them. But to get to that scale, you need to have a lot of cash, right? So we had investors and you know we're building the business up, but at some point you have to really go and raise capital if you want your business to continue to grow. And you, know, you look and say, okay, which partners are the best for us that are strategic, they're gonna align with what we wanna do, they're gonna help us take care of our people, really allow us to still grow the way that we want to, or which potential strategic partners like an ArcVest might have an interest in an organization like ours and can be very complimentary and allow us to still grow the way we'd like to put our people in a position to have strong career opportunities. You start going down that road and you see a lot of overlap or successful long-term solutions between the two organizations. Um, you know, a company like ArcVest ended up making a lot of sense and you know, to grow the way that we wanted to, you have to have a strong financial backer and you know, incredible organization, very strong, healthy balance sheet. So it ended up making sense. But to get to a billion dollar brokers, you have to have a lot of cash. Absolutely. You need money. You need money to make money. You know, I had Andrew Silver on here about two weeks ago and he was talking, he's very candid. He, um, he didn't take that, like the exit that leaving Molo. He was like that. It's been tough. It's been tough being away from it. It was, it was my baby. It was my identity. And he's like, I'd wake up every morning and be like, who am I? And, you know, he started the freight pod now and he's giving himself something new to nurture and grow and do other things. How did you, how do you, how are you feeling now? Yeah. So I decided to leave Molo May 12th. And, you know, it had been something that I thought about for a little bit. You know, does it make sense? What's the next step for me? What do we want to work on? And I felt incredible, to be honest with you. And I feel 
really good about what we had the opportunity to build. I feel really good about the comp- contributions I was able to make. And, and a lot of the people that are there today are incredible leaders and they're in a position to go and continue to help scale the organization. But I felt as if a lot of what I did at the business had kind of come to a culmination point. You integrate the two organizations, you get the business to the point where it's acquired. You continue to see customers still come in. You continue to see the company grow. I'm very entrepreneurial. I like to build. I love startups. And so I felt as if it was time for me to, you know, walk away, go do some traveling and figuring out and figure out what business I wanted to go build next. So to be honest with you, man, it's been incredible. I felt good about the, you know, the optics of the exit, being able to walk away and, you know, have great relationships with the exact team at ArcBest and all the people at Molo. You know, I, I love that. Um, so, so I've been super happy, man. It's probably the, uh, the most focused and motivated I've been in a while um, because you get a chance to go build again. And that's a lot of fun. I, lo- I love to hear it. I can hear it in your voice, too. It's, it's in- infectious. You sound like a man who's ready to go on his next mission. Before we put sort of a, a period on the end of the Molo sentence, though, you don't grow that big without a lot of hard work and without a lot of heavy lifting. What was the hardest part of the Molo journey? I think the hardest part in the beginning, I'll probably go in phases, so beginning, middle, end. I think the hardest part in the beginning was having the mental fortitude to deal with getting punched in the mouth every day when things weren't working the way that you would expect them to. When you're a small organization, you know, sub $50 million in annual revenue, and you're going and talking to large enterprise shippers or you know, large successful trucking companies, they don't really have a reason to tell you yes. They don't have a reason to want to work with you. And you have to be really, really diligent about staying in front of them, telling a good story, building relationships. And sometimes your best efforts just don't work out. So I think the hardest part initially was how do you keep coming back day after day after getting beat up saying, we can do this. This is something that we're able to do. Once you get over that hump and you start to see some success, you tally up your wins, you know, you get strong new logos in there. You start to see consistent capacity get built up. You start to see new talent to people want to work with your organization that maybe didn't want to be a part of it in the beginning because they're a little weird about where you're going. That stuff gives you confidence. So in the beginning, it was just how do you stay resilient and persevere through the challenges? I think in the middle, it's, maturing to be a more advanced strategic organization. You work through the startup challenges. How do you go get the people that can scale each department? You know, you're not as flat anymore. You need leaders to grow, to get to where you want to be. And in the end, it's, you know, maturing and saying, okay, we're part of a large publicly traded organization. So how do we represent this whole org and go out there and get in front of new customers and new carriers to continue to diversify the book? Um, Overall, I think the thing is perseverance, right? There's a lot of people out there doing cool things, new businesses, brokerages, tech startups, or they're building their sales career, whatever it might be, you're going to have tough days. It's going to be really, really hard. You need to persevere through those challenges because it's typically darkest before dawn, and you got to battle through that to get to where you want to be. I, I, I hear you. It, it kind of brings me brings me back to baseball. You know, you're, you're going to hit 200 yeah. or 300. You're going to get beaned by some balls. They're not all going to be home. In fact, you're going to lose most of the time. That's a lot of what sales is. Sales is a, is a lot of striking out. Let's get into a little bit of your, your willosophy on that, which kind of yeah. sounds like it should be a Will Smith-like new album. What is your philosophy on sales, though? You, you know, you say you're paid to get, you're paid to produce. Mm-hmm. So here's my take on sales. I think initially, for reps, let's say it's your first time in sales, you're green, you've never done it before. You need to find ways to get into a routine of reaching out to new opportunities, prospecting, vetting those opportunities, moving them forward in the sales cycle, identifying which ones are a good fit, great, fantastic, moving those forward, getting them closer to closing, but understanding what is a good opportunity 
and what's a bad opportunity. I think it's the hardest part for a new rep because you get really excited about just having conversations with people that want to work with you, but they not they might not be a fit for your business. So you could be spending your time spinning your wheels with poor prospects. You might be the best of the best, but if they're not going to buy or if they're not a good fit for what your organization does, you won't be successful. That's the first piece. The second part of it, I think, is finding people inside of the organization you work at, whether it's a manager or a, a higher level sales professional that you can learn and grow from. Most of what I learned in freight sales, to be honest with you, came from hearing other people's stories. When I got into customer sales management at Coyote, I had never done customer facing sales in freight. I'd done face-to-face -face sales for most of my life, but I'd never done it in transportation. And I went and sat with the best of the best, the top enterprise reps and said, hey, how did you land this customer? Walk me through what they said. How did you email them? What conversations were you having? When you go and have a QBR, what are you saying to them? What objections did they give you? And you start to build your own narrative and take those things and say, I can apply this to this food and beverage customer because it sounds similar. It's exactly like, no, but now I have these experiences that allow me to be able to talk as if I know what's going on. I won't say that you need to fake it till you make it, but you do need to understand the ins and outs of how somebody's business works. And you can do that by using a mentor's stories to understand how they got to where they are. And then I think the next level after that is how do you sell strategically into an account? So people are gonna listen to this and say, okay, you know, I can reach out to the right people, I can have the right stories, but how do I get someone that's been evasive to say yes to me? You need to understand how their day-to-day -day works. You need to understand what makes it harder for them to succeed and then sell inside of that based on what your solution is. And that's gonna move you closer to them saying yes. Does it work every time? Absolutely not. But if you're persistent and provide enough value to what they're doing, they're going to eventually give you a chance. And I mean, people that have been afraid understand it's more about timing than it is with being perfect or having the right pitch. Business comms and business codes, but if you're persistent and stay in the right place, a lot of times you get an opportunity. What is your thought on top performers? Because, you know, when you look at, at freight sales, and I've been hired with groups of guys, one, two out of ten of those people are going to be top performers. Everyone else is going to kind of drop off. What do you, how do you treat the top performers without, I don't know, causing sort of that toxicity of, of super special treatment? Like, how do you nurture those top performers? There's a book I read in 2016 by Mike Weinberg called Sales Management Simplified. It's my favorite sales book for individual performers or managers as well. And he talks about what you need to do with your top performers. And it's a lot of how I model coaching. Um, you know, he says you need to spend a lot of your time with your top performers because they do drive the needle. The Pareto principle is a real thing. You know, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people or 80% of your business comes from 20% of customers. So you need to find a way to stay close to them, help coach and mentor them just because someone's doing well and performing doesn't mean that they don't need a lot of support. Some of the best sales professionals that I've worked with in the past have been some of the neediest, right? Like they have a ton of questions. They're sometimes unsure, but they still perform. And so you don't want to put them on an island and say, hey, that person's good. They've got a strong book. They're making a lot of money because that's when they feel less motivated to want to continue to perform. They want to know that they're a part of what the organization is doing and not just a number that's putting up Know, strong gross margin numbers or, or lots, of, lots of loads or things of that nature. So I think it's important to spend time still mentoring and coaching them, but also finding a way to move the middle up towards B or A players. So you're going to have A players, these are all-stars, B players, middle of the pack, not awful. They're doing their job. They can move up to become A players. You've got you know, C, D, F, whatever it might be. 
it's unlikely that your lowest performers are going to move up to become B or A performers. It happens occasionally, but if someone's not a fit for the role, it's important to coach them into a position where they can succeed, get them to a point where they can do their job well, or probably a good fit for you and the person to move on if you get to the point where they're no longer able to move forward and get better, right? Totally fine. You know, attrition's part of the game. And as long as you've coached them up to the point where they understand what they need to be doing and how to get better, totally fine. But if you can get your C plus B players up to be B pluses, you can really move the needle while also focusing on your A players. You don't want to only focus on the best, but if those people are driving revenue, put the best opportunities in front of them, right? Work with them, help coach them to get to where they want to be, and then pair your ambitious players in the middle that are still learning with your top performers to help pull them up. I've had people that were probably B or so, you know, doing their thing, trying to get better, spend time with high performers and start to see those things rub off on them. And, you know, if you've got the work ethic and you are strong in terms of your ability to reach out to customers where maybe you're not closing, it's up to me as a leader to find ways to help get you where you want to be. So long-winded answer, but a couple different things you can do. You know, Will, you are a uh, a true leader and it takes a lot and it takes bravery and it takes not doing the easy thing. There's a pretty good freight community on LinkedIn, but sometimes it shows its ugly head. Like, for example, in the convoy situation, there were people who they just like couldn't. It's like 800 people are losing their job. This company was trying to make change within the industry. Maybe not everyone agrees, but some people are super negative about it and they couldn't wait. What's your thoughts on negativity on social media, especially when a company like convoy goes down? Two things. That really pissed me off because you see all these trolls commenting on an organization that was trying their best to do something that's transformational for the space and them not succeeding is bad for all of us. I don't see any reason why you would want to cheer that on. It's tasteless. And so that really bothered me. I think it is important to find ways to support the community. If there are people that need connections, if there's a way for me to help put somebody in a position to go be successful. I'm going to do that. Generally speaking, I'm a very positive person. I've found way more fruitful relationships by focusing on what's good and, and the things that I think drive you know, my mindset forward and, and help me stay focused. And I filter a lot of that stuff out, man. I mute a ton of people, unfollow a lot of people because I want my community to be one that is supportive. And it's okay to have an opposing opinion. Maybe you thought that Convoy's approach to building their business wasn't sustainable or that they weren't going to be able to do what they wanted to do. But to be honest with you, most organizations today wouldn't have the focus on digitization or matching or sourcing at the scale or you know level of technology they have right now if a company like Convoy wasn't pushing the narrative, bringing really smart people that were advanced from other um, industries into freight and having them try to drive it forward. So that bothered me, man. But to be honest with you, I don't really have time for that negativity. So I try to keep my circle or the people that I'm in touch with on social close. And you I mean, you see my post, man, I'm like a pretty upbeat cat. I want to talk about stuff that I think helps drive us forward. So, you know, you won't find me in that camp. Well, I mean, I have the I've had the fortune of of doing over 600 episodes of the show, interviewing a lot of founders. I've become friends with a lot of them. I talk to a lot of them behind the scenes, and I'll tell you, they all talk. And you might be going on LinkedIn and thinking you're getting some likes with your hot take on Convoy, but I can tell you for certain, you're slamming the door shut with some people. People take notice when you put that out there, and they go. 
screw that guy. I don't want to work with someone like that who's just ready to cut people out because, you know, they just slit, they're, maybe they'll slit my throat too. Or it's just a bad look, especially if you're totally. sort of more positive. You're out here to build. You're not here to break things down. Yeah, it does none of us any good to, you know, be excited about someone's failure, right? Like I said, it's bad uh, really for all of us when an organization fails and it's going to create a level of insert uncertainty that's going to have a, a ripple effect for, you know, years to come. So that's just, it's not a good look. Well, Will, you've been a pleasure to talk to before I let you go. What is next for you, though? You've gotten, you did your big trip. You went through Europe like, yeah. the, uh, like you did your National Lampoon's European vacation. What's, uh, what's yes. next on the menu? So I've got a new business that I've been working on uh, the last couple of months, kind of ideating on what I wanted to to launch. Um, I will be live here in about two weeks. Um, I can't say exactly what it's going to be, but I'm excited to bring something to market that I think helps support a lot of businesses and, and drive individuals forward as they try to build their careers and, and go and grow. Um, you know, one of the things that I've enjoyed the most about the last six and a half years um, that I spent at Molo was you know, truly building and, and on top of building an organization, like building strong relationships. So um, I'm excited about venturing into something new that allows me to, you know, to pick up a new skill set. And had a conversation the other day. I said, hey, you know, last time I went and did something that I was unsure about or didn't know if I was really prepared to go do, we built a billion dollar freight brokerage that's been recognized as one of the best in the space. So I'm excited to go build something else that I think will change a little bit of how we look at uh, one particular space and brokerage today. Well, so. well, man, I really love the attitude. You're a breath of fresh air. When the company comes out of stealth, let me know. I'll be happy to do a feature yeah. and let people know what you guys are up to. And hey, thanks for stopping by sharing some of that philosophy. I, 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 I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care, sir. It's great to meet you. All right. I'll see you. All right. Truxit. Truxit is revolutionizing the truck brokerage industry. Truxit increases carrier pay while reducing shipping costs. Truxit pays carriers in two days or less. Truxit reduces deadhead and empty miles. Truxit provides paperless BOL, POD, and payment. Ship for less. Drive for more with Truxit.com. Check them out. All right. Elsewhere. All right. Here we go. Oh. Oh, look at him settle into it. Oh, oh, buddy. Yes. My good man, to the market. Four of these, <laughs> because it's kind of slow. This is amazing. This is how I'd like to arrive at F3. I think the all speaker should be pulled on stage with a robot uh, chariot. Haley Fazio, can we make this an F3 experience? She wouldn't give me Mike Tyson singing the Monster Mash. She suggested herself instead. <laughs> it's Justin Martin, a.k.a. Super Trucker. That, that's the video that's going to be playing in the background when we're all being converted into batteries by the machines. By the machine. That's how it actually feels. Like It's, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> it's like uh, the Matrix. You're the, the battery. Yeah. How, hey, how yeah, was that? We brought how this was, upon ourselves. How was Halloween last night with Sullivan? Where, did you guys go out trick-or-treating? Did you get a nice haul? Yeah, we went out early. It's getting kind of cold up here. Um, nice little haul. He had a whole bucket already for just from his school. Um, and then we filled up another bucket and a half uh, during our round of trick-or-treating. And then um, by the time we got home, it was a little after seven. And it was dead. I think we had three trick-or-treaters total at our house by the time we got home. And it started raining. Um, so, yeah, the earlier the, earlier the better, uh, at least up here in South Jersey. 
Yeah, you know, it was cold yesterday here, but my neighborhood's like kind of right by the elementary school, so it's it's just lit. There's just like kids everywhere. I mean, it still dives yeah. down around like eight eight thirty. It doesn't go to like ten o'clock at night or anything, but it was a good time. I charge like a ten percent dad tax to the kids. I take about ten percent of their candy. What do you charge? Uh, maybe like one or two, uh, three, I'll, I'll say three, three pieces a day. I'd say he's, yeah. he's got enough candy for, for like months now. So, uh, what we're doing right now is we're kind of separating the popsicles or yeah. lollipops away from everything. My wife hates him getting his hands on lollipops because he just gets everything in the house sticky. So, um, he likes M&Ms. So any, any M&Ms we find, we like keep them separate. So those, those will be like his, uh, his bribes for good behavior in the future. Yet again, I didn't get any edibles. The news uh, always hypes it up. They make it yeah. seem like you're going to get a bunch of like gushers with a high THC count in it. It's nothing. Never, never in there. Not for me, at least. We had we we had one neighbor who was giving out you know candy for the kids and then treats for adults, but it was like um, you know like Jack Daniel shots and stuff. Did you see the person that was giving away two liter bottles of soda? To me, that is like the stupidest possible gift you can give. To. Has this person ever been trick or treating? Who wants to carry around a two liter with all of your candy? that's pretty heavy um i wonder where they bought them from because um very few people were giving out like the big size yeah. king size candy this year we had like one person in our neighborhood and then my father-in-law you know he had some but you know there's not a lot of trick-or-treating going on in his area they have um one of the guys who live in the neighborhood he owns urban air which is like an indoor i don't know if you have one in philly it's like a franchise but uh they have like foam pits and uh, it's like a, it's like ninja yeah. warrior for kids almost he so he yeah. gave out passes free passes to families to go so that was oh. pretty sick that was definitely the best haul for. Oh me. yeah, no, my 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 son loved going going to those. We have one uh, up in Tom's River. They're great. Yeah. Well, hey, let's talk about something new. We always make fun of as a service, always a way to get recurring revenue out of the people, always getting you to pay more. In fact, as I understand it, one of the reasons like SaaS, ta- all this crap is so popular is because venture capitalists, they view recurring revenue at like a four or five times multiple of just regularly paying for something. So it allows you to get a lot of investor income. Well, Mac has jumped into the situations. Mac is offering monthly subscription. You will own nothing and be happy. Mac owns a monthly subscription. <laughs> subscription for medium duty trucks but it could be a good idea because these are very cost intensive you want to get them to smaller fleets this seems to be a way you can do it what do you make of trucks as a service at a mac um it's definitely something new um i i see i i'm rooting for them i hope this works especially because it's an electric truck um and it's they're not doing the class H. the class was a six and seven so smaller lighter duty trucks um there's also the 1700 mile Per month commitment yeah um i don't know what i don't know what customers are they're rooting for but at least where i was at with my last job that was local um anything over 100 miles a day is a, that's a long day especially with like multiple stops so um i was doing some back back in the napkin math that's you know if you're only running five days a week that's over 85 miles a day you need to be running so i don't know what kind of you know commitments that they're, they're going to get with that kind of requirement it's interesting because, you know, these things don't have the biggest batteries on them. They don't have uh, – they, they yeah. can't run that long. So it seems like you'd, you'd want to start – and this is what I always yell. Like, stay away from OTR. You want to, you want to sell into, like, local delivery, someplace where you can slip seat and charge and you can bring trucks back to a depot. You need that kind of setup. You don't, you don't need something where someone's stopping at a, at a truck stop and having to, like, rely on charging there. It doesn't seem like – a long haul play. It's interesting too. You see, yeah, the cost here says the all in subscription, you have to do three years. It requires a 1,700 mile a month commitment. They say, according to them, that within three years, it's comparable to the cost you'd be paying for diesel. It, is there, I didn't see a monthly price in this article though. It just says you need that commitment, but it doesn't actually say what no. it costs. 
No, and also it's also not including like the upgrades you're going to have for your own local um, charging. You know, if you don't have that infrastructure already in place, those are upgrades you're going to have to pay. So it doesn't say whether you're, they're going to help you with that or if you got to foot foot the bill. There's there's a lot of like unknowns in this right now. They they do have like Mac Financial Services. They offer this thing called Electrify Infrastructure and Electrify Lease that is mm-hmm. that helps people. It helps because these are very intensive costs. They get like charging on site and stuff like that. So you can do sixty month loans through Mac Financial if you're trying to sort of build that infrastructure on site and you want to bring this trucks to the service. It sounds expensive, but like it seems like I guess they're just they're making it economical. And right now with fleets being so stretched, I mean I maybe a smart play if it takes off i could see a lot of people copying it i think they would they'd like the idea of this yeah that's an interesting point too because um it they're, they're digging you on the truck so you're paying for the truck and then you're paying a loan to upgrade your electrical charging infrastructure so they're just they're getting money from you from all from all sides here yeah Hey, yellow was a big story big yellow bankruptcy um todd main reports that third quarter yeah, you forgot about it already? <laughs> Saya didn't. Saya is the big winner. Saya has increased their shipments by 11.3%. Supposedly they've pulled in more of this yellow freight than everybody. Everybody else is around 5%. Are you surprised about Saya making a big play into picking up the uh, scraps or or the uh, the debris from yellow? No, they they've been uh kicking ass and taking names in this in this area for a while. But it's interesting that it's only 11% and the rest is kind of like barely over 5% spread across the other carriers. Yeah. It's just a, a great sign of how over capacity everything has been. You know, yellow was the largest bankruptcy we've seen in trucking history. They were the third largest LTL carrier. They went away and everything's still humming along. Okay, pretty much. Okay. You know, this is interesting. ODFL, they had a 5.7% increase, but their CFO says we're hearing about competitors that are missing pickups. They don't have the people part of the capacity equation solved and maybe took on too much freight and are starting to have negative implications from their overall service park. Now, I don't know if he's subtweeting Saya right there because Saya took the big lead. I mean, obviously, he's trying to make his CFO. He's trying to make things look better. Hey, we can capture some of this market mm-hmm. share. Deutsche Bank's Amet Mahotri said Saya is capitalizing on a once-in-a-generation market share opportunity in the LTL market. So, I mean, if you're a CFO, you got to say something, too. Like, why is this company kicking our ass in, in this space? But that could be true. Saya, they could have just wanted to grab this in, and people could be having issues. Yeah, and I don't know if it's just they were – you know, the, the first one to, to lunge at it and, and grab it, or if they really were, you know, in the, in the best possible position and everyone else is just kind of mad about it. <laughs> 35% of those polls said that, well, ha- that said that, well, they have already placed their freight with a new carrier. They will still be looking to make changes in the coming months. So, okay, that's a Morgan Stanley poll. So this isn't just smoke from Old Dominion. And yeah, it makes sense. You bring in a lot of freight. Saya is strong in some lanes. They might not be as strong in others. You might have some drop-offs. And, you know, the way you make a shipper happy is you tell them you're going to change carriers if you're the broker. Yeah, and a lot of those carriers, or the shippers rather, you know, they they were yellows. Yellow was their carrier and yellow was like a discount carrier for the longest time. So they're probably not, not happy with the higher rates that they're paying. So, um, you know, saying that you're going to go switch to a different different carrier, you know, okay, good luck. Let's talk about broker morale. I got into this, and you know, Will was so positive. I don't know how much of that interview you heard, but Will was talking about his philosophy on sales and how you have to nurture people and, and the struggles that go through. I mean, he, he I, I like the energy that guy brings. 
Yeah, philosophy. I love it. But here it is. So on Reddit, this person says, and this is like, this isn't out of character. I've heard people on LinkedIn post similar things. But he says, at work and hating my life, this has been the worst job I've ever had. It wasn't always like this. When I first started, the place was amazing. It was everything I could have ever asked for. But the moment Q4 started, they pulled everyone in a room. Groups of four at a time. They basically went off on everyone. Even the new hire that started a few weeks prior. We aren't hitting our numbers. Some of the things my manager says effective immediately. Everyone is in this office, is under a microscope. If you're not hitting your numbers, you're dead weight. Uh, if you're dead weight, I'll personally take you to HOR and get fired. He said the staff at Coop is burning. He says he's even posting this from the toilet bowl because he's hiding from his manager. Now, I've been in freight brokers. I've, I've done sales on, on the operations side when the big financial crisis was there. I remember it was at FTN. They didn't bring me in, but they brought a lot of people into a room and they said, hey, we're not hitting this. Some got their walking paper, some didn't. When I was in sales, I had the conversation where basically verbatim, what was just said to this broker, you're dead weight, you don't hit the numbers, you go. That that's the reality in freight sales, but it's weighing on people. Yeah, and you know, as a driver, you're not really going to get much sympathy from them. You know, they're going to they're going to say, "Oh, you posted this from a toilet. Guess what? We don't even have toilets yeah. to post uh, about our jobs from." So, but <laughs> but I mean, the- that's, that's part of that's, that's part of sales too. You know, it's it's a it's a rough gig. Um, and if you're competing against if you're, if you're working with other other guys that are getting the numbers and you're not, you need to do some soul searching and think, okay, what are they doing that I'm not? Well, the other side of that, though, is you go, hey, truckers aren't going to give them sympathy, but these brokers who aren't making money, who keep getting yelled, oh, you're taking all the money, they're not going to give you any sympathy either. They say, what the hell are you talking about? I'm not making yeah. play in this quarter, and I think I'm going to get fired at the end of the month. So you want the load or not, buddy? <laughs> yeah, right? I'm not saying like, that this, this, this is a great thing or this is, this is how it should be. To me, I, I think that trucking works best when the carriers, the brokers, the shippers, the drivers, everybody is in sync and, and working well with each other. When one side is feeling pain and the other side is getting joy out of the other side feeling pain, that doesn't work well for anybody in the situation. Adam Cole, I mean, he kind of nails it. And this is any market when you're doing bad. He said, morale among the grizzled veterans, grim acceptance of the cycle plan, but hopeful that things will turn around and some of their merits from the past mm-hmm. will carry through while they're working on different opportunities. The newer people, shock, fear, and questioning life choices. Anyone who started after 2019, shock, fear, and questioning life choices, especially how they had that, that big uplift in 2021 and 22 to crash to earth. That's that's kind of what I was thinking too. Like I don't know how long this guy was, um, whoever this poster was. I don't, I don't know how long they they've been in this, but I mean, everybody was making money hand over fist during the COVID boom. You know, nobody cared about brokers or broker transparency or any of this stuff when everybody was making you know six, seven, eight, nine miles uh, dollars per mile. But now that rates have crashed and the volume has crashed, everybody's hurting and uh, it's not doing anyone any favors. You, uh, this might be your favorite headline of the year. Truckers push FMCSA to make brokers oh, yeah. pay for detention time. Is this a good idea or not, Justin? I mean, yeah, if, if, if I'm the one in charge, absolutely. Um, I can't tell you how many places I've been to where I'm, I'm like, I don't have any more hair because I'm just pulling all my hair out. But, you know, you get to some places and they make you sit and there's no rhyme or reason to it other than they can. You know, their knees... If you, if you get to the point where so many guys are frustrated about sitting for a while, don't be surprised when they find the biggest hammer that they can find to hit you over the head with, because that's basically what's happening here. The armchair attorney, Matthew Leffler, he said, I'm conflicted. Ultimately, I am a believer in trucks getting paid, but the FMCSA is an organization dedicated to safety. In order to build out the capabilities mm-hmm. to regulate and enforce new laws, the agency's mission must expand. I am skeptical of regulatory growth, and I am too. Like, this sounds good on paper, but think of this. You're bringing the mm-hmm. government in here. Have you ever heard Richard Nixon speak before? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so the safety thing the safety thing is, is, is critical because, you know, 
the more drivers are sitting around wasting their time and burning their hours, driving more fatigued, and then they have, they have that electronic clock in the truck with them. Now they're now they're racing the clock uh, to make it for the hours that they were detained. That's safety right there. Brandon Bay says, I can't really see how this would work out. Brokers are the middlemen here. Usually they have policies and processes around detention laid out clearly on the rate con. What of that, Justin? Well, I mean, it's also part of being the middleman. You know, obviously it's the shipper's fault for most of the time that they're being detained. But if the broker wants to be the middleman between the drivers and the brokers, they're the ones that are going to have to figure, you know, figure out how to get their drivers paid. You think it? You think this passes? You think this goes through, comes into uh, effect? I, I don't know. And even if it does, I don't. Th- I don't think anyone's going to be happy with how it gets settled because chances are whoever's writing these rules has never been in a truck has never been detained they have no idea what it's like booking a load or trying to work any of this stuff out so it just it's going to make it worse for everybody going forward okay how about this though like how about you push this through but you also can charge a reverse tonu so you order the truck the guy cancels Hmm. at the last minute you now have lost a day or two in shipping you gotta go find someone else so you've taken some damages too how about a little give and take yeah no yeah yeah there needs there needs to be give and take on both sides well, hey, Justin, thank you so much for your time today. This episode went by really, really fast. Had amazing, great guests. Find him at Super Trucker. Find us at FW What the Truck. And find me at Timothy Dooner. That's D-O-O-N-E-R. Look up the show on Freakwaves YouTube. There's an entire playlist with, uh, I believe, all 648 of these episodes. Or if you like audio, look uh, look us up on Apple Podcast, Spotify. And Spotify, we now have video, too, so you can check it out there. Take, take care, and don't be a stranger.